I'm glad to be back. I was here a couple weeks ago, and um, I didn't think I'd be back this soon simply because I was uh, informed by uh, Pastor Mark I needed to do some sensitivity training. Um, and so I, I spoke a few weeks ago about salt and light, and I, I made a bit of a joke at the expense of the good people of Dunville, uh, which actually resulted in me being booed at church as a guest speaker. And that's, that's not easy to do, so I'm a little proud of myself for that. But uh, I thought this morning I should really start by apologizing to Dunville. Um, and you may recall I had a sandwich board here last time that I used as kind of a prop for what we were doing. Um, and I redid it. I redid it for today, just to let Dunville know how I really, really feel about them. But then, uh, (laughs) as part of uh, sensitivity training, there was actually a little bit of community outreach as well. So I took my sign to Dunville yesterday, or Friday, I guess it was, and uh, and tried to uh, tried to bring my apology a little closer to them. So you may see me here, recognize me with the the big fish, and uh, just uh, on the streets. They had a bacon food truck there, big fan. Uh, a concert of one, one guy on stage, one guy listening. So uh, that was, uh, I felt very special that they did that for me. And uh, so, uh, so to the people of Dunville, I simply say, uh, mia culpa, mia culpa. And uh, you may not know that, but that's actually Latin. And if you translate it exactly, mia culpa simply means my bad. And so uh, I do apologize for, for um, hurting any feelings that may have happened. And you may notice from the screen here, um, I, I've included the language at the top. We were just chatting about the Latin. And uh, I'm going to do that because we're going we're gonna to touch on four ancient languages today. So it might be a, an interesting morning that way. Um, I won't put up a sign when I'm speaking English simply because my English not so good. But last time I spoke, I, uh, I, uh, I gave my sermon the title of the best sermon ever, which, um, according to many, raised your expectations too high. Um, so this week, I've simply entitled my message, uh, Well, That Was Pointless. And uh, the reason I did that is because two reasons. One, uh, I'm not going to follow kind of a standard sermon uh, outline where I make three points to make an argument and then I close with a challenge, but also because, uh, you know, sometimes things that may seem uh, we might term as pointless are simply because, well, I already knew that. And so uh, we're going to go through this tonight, and uh, instead of, of kind of coming through with a, with a multi-point sermon, I just want to talk about how great our God is, and the goodness of God in particular tonight, or this morning, uh, the glory of God. But first, an astronomy lesson, because understanding what the glory of God is all about, it really requires us to look at the big picture, or in this case, the really big picture. And so you may recognize this. This is Earth. And what you may not know is to travel around the center of the Earth at the equator is a trip of 40,000 kilometers. It takes 40,000 kilometers to travel around the equator. It actually is a little less if you go pole to pole, because what a lot of people don't realize is our planet is not perfectly round. It's kind of squished a little bit. But 40,000 kilometers sounds like a lot to me. And it is a lot, but it's not a lot when you start to compare it to things like our sun. Our sun is 186,000 kilometers away from us. And based on the speed of light, that means that the sunlight you see out your window right now is seven minutes old. That sunlight originated at the sun seven minutes ago, and it took seven minutes to travel 186,000 kilometers. And the reason I tell you this is because... um, I'm going to have to switch uh, 
units of measure here. We're going to stop talking in kilometers. We're going to start talking in something called light years. And there's a big difference. So if you can imagine how fast light has to move, that you can travel 186,000 kilometers in seven minutes, just imagine how long that same light could travel in a year. And now that you're done imagining that, let me do the math for you. The answer is this. In one year, light will travel. 9 trillion, 460 uh, million, 730, sorry, 9 trillion, 460, uh, I'm doing it wrong, billion, 730 million, 472,580.8 kilometers. That's in a year. And so when you look at the Milky Way galaxy, which we're a part of, we're in there somewhere, we, re- we, we measure that the, the distance across the Milky Way is actually 200,000 light years. And so think about that as a distance. And then let me give you one more. This is the Sombrero Galaxy. You can probably guess where they got the name from. Sombrero Galaxy, the center of that galaxy has a light source that is 800 billion times the size of our sun, and it is 30 million light years away. Now, I want you to imagine how far it is for light to travel for 30 million light years. And now that you're done imagining, let's do the math. It equals out to 283 quintillion, 821 quadrillion, 914 trillion, 177 billion, 424 million kilometers. And just as you're about to say, I don't care about this, let me tell you (laughs) why I told you that number. And it's real simple. You can see the Sombrero Galaxy if you're in the right place at the right time with your naked eye. It's on display for you to see. And uh, we know this because it was actually discovered in 1781, and that was before there were any real serious telescopes uh, that had ever been invented. And most people think Galileo invented the telescope. It's actually not true. It was developed by a Dutchman named Lippershey, and he loved nothing more than to go out at night and stare at the sky. And the reason he loved to go out at night and stare at the sky was because it was free. And the Dutch (laughs) are cheap. You know, I, I, just, I just realized, to the good people of the Netherlands, may I just say, mea culpa. Um, <laughs> I kind of did it again there. I, I, I'm trying to cut back on this sort of stuff. But again, I don't, I don't know if that's enough. So if any of you would be willing to <clears throat> pay for a ticket to, uh, to the Netherlands, I would be happy to take my sign and walk the streets and let them know in, per- in person how much I care about them. But... Uh, I do realize that if you were both from Dunville and Dutch, I've lost you. I've lost all credibility. Uh, You're dismissed. You can go. Um, Don't pull your kids out. They're having fun down there. But uh, this is is the jumping off point that I want to start with, is this idea that all of outer space was created with a purpose. And the Sombrero Galaxy, some 30 million light years away, serves that same purpose. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning... Uh, I want you to open up to the book of Genesis. If you can't find it, just ask the person next to you where it is. Um, I'm just kidding. It's at the beginning because it tells us about the beginning. And the first entire section of Genesis 1 tells us how God created things from nothing. He just spoke them into existence, and it demonstrated his great power. And so we're going to read through a part of that creation story right now in Genesis 1, starting in, in verse 14. It says this, 
And God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. He set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the reason I just showed that to you is I want, I want to start with the simple premise that creation is not an accident. God, this, God created the universe and everything in it for a reason, but we don't know necessarily beyond keeping track of time what that reason was. And so if you want to leave your thumb in the book of Genesis there and flip over to the book of Psalms, we'll, uh, we'll read what David had to say. And this is in Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. He says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Now when I read that and I read uh, verse 2, it says that creation speaks to the creator. But then in verse 3, it simply says this thing where it says, uh, and his voice is never heard. So when I read that, I thought that meant no one's listening. Right? If, we say, if we say someone, can you hear me, what we're really asking is, are you listening to me? And so I thought that's what it said, but as I dug, a, dug in a little bit on this word, uh, I discovered that's not what it means at all. And when, you, and when you look at this word where it says never heard, it's actually a Hebrew word that's pronounced nishma. And nishma is this idea of an audible voice. And so when we reread that section, it says they speak without sound or word, their audible voice is never heard. And so what it's telling us is that, that when we look at something like the Milky Way, we know this was created, and it speaks, and it may never say an audible word. No one will hear the universe speaking, but it speaks nonetheless, and it speaks to the craftsmanship, and as, as verse 1 told us, to the glory of God. And my ability to be in a right mind and a right heart with my God depends on my ability to understand this, that I am a part of his creation. But God didn't stop creating there. He continues, and we can pick it up in Genesis 1. So just leave your thumb in the book of Psalms there and flip back to Genesis 1, and we're going to go back to verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And you see, God's creation was not just a demonstration of his power when he created the heavens and he created the vastness and the massiveness of what happens out there. He says his creation, the power of his creation resides in us as well. Because if you don't need to look through a telescope to be amazed at what God has created, you can look through a microscope. Because there are millions of chemical reactions and electrical impulses that happen in your body every second of every minute of every day of your life. Your heart, for example, beats 100,000 times a day, pumping 7 liters of blood through close to 100,000 kilometers of arteries, veins, and capillaries. These are red blood cells that have been magnified 2,000 times using a, scan, a scanning electron microscope. And so what that means is 
that if you were to take all of your veins, arteries, and capillaries and stretch them out, they would go around that equator we talked about two and a half times, and that's all contained within you. Your personal genome sequence, also known as your DNA, if it was typed out on a computer, it would be a three billion word document. This picture is magnified a hundred million times. In fact, there's no microscope powerful enough to do that, so they have to use something called a molecular imager. And to think of it this way, if, if that's a three billion word document, your Bible has about 800,000 words in it. If you don't believe me, start counting. 800,000 words. That means that your genetic code is the equivalent to 4,000 Bibles of information. If you were an audiobook and we read each strand of your DNA at a rate of one per second, it would take 100 years to tell the story of you. And if a picture is worth 1,000 words, you would need to be represented by 3 million pictures. But here's the thing. That's not a testament to you. That's a testament to the God who created you. And it goes deeper than that. If creation's job is to give glory to the creator, we need to know that Jesus is the architect and the author of creation, and that all of creation was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And this is so cool. If you leave your thumb in Genesis, and we'll jump all the way forward to Colossians. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says this. Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdom, rulers, authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. See, all of creation was made to give glory to Jesus. And it's, that's the purpose of the stars in the heaven, but that's our purpose as well. And I think we hope, before we go too much further, we should probably pause for a few seconds and define a few words, because sometimes we use these words interchangeably. So let's just begin with this. We'll begin with the word glory. And glory is a little rare in the English language, because glory can be both a noun and a verb. It's not the only one. The word balance, for example. You can have a balance in your bank account, or you can balance something on your head. Well, glory is similar to that. Glory is simply this. It's, uh, as a noun, it's the highest renown or honor won by notable achievement, magnificence, or great beauty. But this word in the original Hebrew is a word called kabod. And this word kabod has a common root tied to the concept of heaviness. So it's, it's tied to this word heaviness. And I'm not sure if he was the first, but C.S. Lewis wrote about this in an essay he wrote called uh, God's Glory. Um, this idea of, of God's glory having weight a weight of expectation. And so if we change the definition slightly, we could say it's referred to a heavy renown or honor, a weighty magnificence. But as a verb, it also means something slightly different. It means to take great pride or pleasure in, or a heavy or weighty pride or pleasure. And this word kabao could be attached to other concepts. For example, um, in, the, in Hebrew times, if you were uh, rich, they would say you were heavy in wealth. And it may be where they get the term loaded from, but it's, it's this idea that there's this weight, this weight behind you and what you have. And so if we continue definitions, uh, we look at worship and praise. And so worship and praise are not both nouns and verbs, but really they're connected because they have the same meaning. It's just one is in the form of a noun and one is in the form of a verb. So worship means a feeling of reverence or adoration for, to honor, Whereas praise as a verb means to show reverence or adoration for, to show honor. And so keeping that in mind, 
we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we hold in high regard? What do we take great pride or pleasure in? What do we have an adoration or an affection for? And there's a popular shortcut, you've probably heard this before, where people say, if you want to know the answer to that question, just look at how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And for me, I'll be honest with you, I, I focus on the concept of how I spend my time because, to be honest, in my life, most of the things I spend my money on, I don't really care about at all. I don't care about RRSPs and electric bills and, and insurance. Uh, these are not demonstrations of my passions. These are demonstrations of my obligations. But I want to focus on this idea of how we spend our time. And I really think it, about it like this. I think we can summarize our society in general as people who strive for, for what's perfect. We spend all of our time chasing after what's perfect. And I think the best example is just to scroll through pictures on social media. I mean, you see people who are looking for the perfect selfie. Or, as I, as I discovered is a real thing among young people today, the perfect someone else which is when you take a picture of someone and you're not in it. The perfect picture of your family, the perfect picture of your vacation, the perfect picture of your dinner, the perfect tweet, the perfect retweet, the perfect house you can live in, the perfect car you can drive, the perfect tech with your smartphone and your smartwatch because you, having a smartphone is not easy enough. You need a watch to tell you what your phone's thinking. Your perfect job or career, your perfect hobby, your perfect round of golf, your perfect relationship, and don't forget your perfect kids. And all of these areas are areas we seem to chase after perfection. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. None of these things are bad. But that's not what I'm saying at all. But we chase after what's perfect, ignoring the only thing that really is perfect. And it's not the perfect selfie. And I would summarize that by this. All of, if all of creation was made to give glory to God, we need to understand that these things can be a part of our life, but they were never meant to be the point of our life. And this is nothing new. Paul wrote a letter to the early church in Rome. And all of you have been studying the book of Romans with Jackie and Nate on Tuesday night. You know exactly where I'm going with this. Because Paul writes to the church in Rome. And it's important to remember he's writing this to believers in Rome. This isn't for the general public. This isn't something that goes out in the newspaper or being uh, yelled out in the town square. This was for churches to read. Now, at the beginning of his letter, we call it chapter 1, Paul says the following things about the church. So just leave your thumb in Colossians there and jump over to Romans. Romans 1, starting in verse 19, says this. They know the truth about God because he made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. And just a few verses later, Paul summarizes what he's writing here. And he says this, They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And I read that and I think, welcome to 2019. I mean, that sounds like the world we live in, where people chase after and people long after the creation, not the creator. Everything that's here on the planet that we take joy in. And again, they're not bad things, but they're not what's meant to be the focus of our lives. But I suggest to you that even back when Paul wrote this, this wasn't new either. And if you want to leave your thumb in Romans, then jump back to Genesis. We'll go all the way back to Genesis 3. And I'm sure you're familiar with this story. It involves Adam and Eve and the eating of some fruit from a very specific tree. And the serpent said to Eve... Um, 
is it true that you're not able to eat anything that's in the garden? And Eve said, of course, no, that's not, of course we're, not, we're allowed to eat some of the fruit. And it picks up in verse 3. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Back in the garden, at the beginning of time, uh, Eve believed a lie. And, that took, and the reason she was so willing to believe that lie is it took the focus off of God and onto herself. Remember, we're the part of the creation that Paul was talking about when he talked about people worshiping the created instead of the creator. You see, we tend to glory in ourselves and in our lives that we've created for ourselves instead of the God who created us. And it's not just stuff that gets in the way of our worshiping. It could be ourselves. And the problem is that glory, the glory that belongs to God is simply too heavy for these things to stand up under. Because this great glory, it comes with great expectations. So we may chase after all the things that are perfect in the hope that it will fulfill us, our jobs, our relationships, our pursuit of stuff, and that takes so much of our time and effort to maintain, but they simply can't hold up under the weight of our own expectations. It can become almost like an addiction where we're trying to get these things to meet our expectations, to make us feel fulfilled, but they can't because that's not what they were created to do. And so can these things, these things that have been created, can they hold up, can they offer joy that will last forever? Can these things fill you up, make you feel satisfied? Can these things satisfy your need to give glory to someone greater than you? Or do they simply cause you to continue to chase after more and more of these things? So let me ask it same question in a different way. Do we spend too much time at work? Do we spend too much time on social media? Do we spend too much time at the mall? Do we spend too much time in our yards? Do we spend too much time golfing? Do we spend too much time parenting our kids? Do we spend too much time working on our marriages? Well, welcome back for some of you. I saw a bunch of heads pop up when I said that. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, uh, Gary, have you even read Ephesians 5? And to you, I would say, um, first of all, it's Mr. Watson. But yeah, I have. I I have read Ephesians 5, and here's what I get. When I read Ephesians 5, here's what I understand from what I read. Great, great marriages are godly marriages. Because if my relationship is right with him, then my relationship can be right with her. And if my love for him is true, then my love for her could be true. And if I expect my wife to meet all of my needs, and if I expect my wife to hold up under the weight of those expectations, she can't, because that's not what she was created to do. And then none of these things are meant to fulfill you because that's not what they're created for and it's not what they're de designed for. So chasing after them is not what you were designed for. We were designed to give glory to our creator. And to expect all of these things to fulfill us, it's just too high an expectation. It's just too heavy. And our greatest joy needs to be uh, loving God and knowing God. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I mentioned before he'd wrote, written on this topic. He wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while, when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. I used to write with a lot more conviction back then, eh? You read that and it's like, whoa, ease up. But it's true. Our expectation is that we can be fulfilled by things of this world and we can be fulfilled by our online profile and we can be fulfilled by the people around us. And it's simply not true. It offers temporary joy and the world offers this temporary joy at a price. But what God offers is fulfillment. What God offers when we offer up our praise and our worship towards him as God, then God returns full joy for all of our lives. C.S. Lewis is saying this. He says, you're content to vacation here. But God's offering this. And it's true. We tend to be, we tend to be comfortable with fleeting moments of happiness. But we know that there's a perfect creator who says, I made you for more. Psalm 34, David writes this, taste and see that the Lord is good. And, when, and what that means is when you seek out God, that's when you can find out who God is and how great God is and how good God is. So leave your thumb in Romans and just jump over for a second to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 8 says this, there may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God the Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. Jesus is our beautiful beach beach vacation, and he's enough, but we have to seek that out. There's a great conversation between Jesus and an unnamed woman that's recounted in John 4. So if you leave your thumb in 1 Corinthians for a second and jump over to the Gospel of John, uh, we know her simply as the woman at the well because all we know about her is that she's a woman at a well. Uh, But they start talking, and she becomes more and more amazed by what Jesus is saying because he knows all about her. And this stranger knows all about her life, even the stuff she tries to hide. And so she says to uh, Jesus in verse 19, she says this, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you worship the Father, on the mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one that you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And I actually love the, and just leave that up for a second, I actually love the, uh, the NIV way that Jesus responds. Instead of the, the NIV version says, instead of saying, I am the Messiah, he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And I like that because it's a little bit confusing. I think it, caught, it, it forces you to stop for a second. She would have to stop and think about what he just said because it was that amazing of a statement. It was earth-shattering. And so just as we look at this, the reason I put that all on one screen was not to test your vision, but to point out to you that this conversation is about worship, but it's more than just about where. It started with a conversation about where, but it ended with an idea of how, how you worship. And so this whole conversation goes on from there. Because her question says to me that she knows there's something missing. It's more than just a question as to why they worship in different places, because the answer was simple. Samaritans weren't welcome to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. 
But what Jesus is pointing out is that worship is not something that can happen just in Jerusalem. And it's not something that can just happen here in this building. It's something you do with your whole life. We're the only part of creation that God has put his image on. And all the rest of creation continues to glorify God, the creator. And so must we. So Jesus brings us back to that purpose, to glorify him, to lift him up in worship and praise. Because to put it quite simply, to worship Jesus is to love Jesus. And to love Jesus is to live for Jesus. And to live for Jesus means to live like Jesus. Romans 12 says as much. In verse 1, Paul pleads with us to give our bodies to God because, all, because of all he has done for us. He says, be a living and holy sacrifice, and that is truly the way to worship him. I love the way the Message Bible puts it. The Message Bible is a translation where it kind of summarizes and puts into everyday language. Here's what it says. It says, um, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering, embracing what God, what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Now, there's only one more, one more point I want to cover, and it's, and it's really the best part. And it's simply this. When we choose to give glory to God, he allows us to share in that glory. I'll say it again because it's too, too good to miss. When we give glory to God, he allows us to share in that glory. So just leave your thumb in John and flip over to Romans 8 for a second. Starting in verse 15, it says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. I just want to stop there for a second. What does that mean, Abba Father? Uh, which leads us to another language that we need to look at, and that's the word Abba here. And I, I just, it's been, it's been years I've, I've been using these terms, chatting about the Latin and a view of the Hebrew and things like this. I am stuck on Aramaic for years. So if you have something that works as a little saying for Aramaic, I would love for you to share with me because I can't figure it out. But it's Aramaic, and it simply means father. So if I'm reading this right, Paul, what Paul wrote is father, father. And why would he do that? Why would he choose to write father, father in Romans 8.15? And it's actually done in two different languages. And uh, the second father, the one that appears in English for us, uh, is in Greek, and it's pater. And pater is simply the same word that we would refer to as God the Father. So when Paul refers to God as Father, Father, he's combining this idea of of Abba, which was a a close, personal, loving father. Some people would even say like dad or daddy. And he's combining it with this powerful creator God in Greek. And so when he says Father, Father, he's tying those two ideas together. And the reason he does that becomes evident in in the rest of this section. So in Romans 8, 16, it continues... For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs to God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his sufferings. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation has was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And it continues on. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. 
For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. And I know that's a really long set, uh, section of scripture, but I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to shorten it without losing the meaning. It simply tells us this, that we know that we'll share God's glory when we join him in heaven, but we don't have to wait, that we're given a foretaste, we're given a little sample of God's glory living right within us through Holy Spirit, that we get a sense of what God's glory is all about as, as followers of Jesus. And so if I can close with one last piece of scripture, and I know you're running out of thumbs, but just flip over to Psalm 115 for a second. And it simply says this. I've used the NIV because it's a little more poetic. I just like the way it sounds. It says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Um, they're going to they're worship with us through one more song just because when I, when I thought about how do, you, how do you hopefully hit home with something like this, it doesn't really work if I just um, send you on your way with, with the last message. So we're going we're gonna to end with a song tonight. But I encourage you to chase after perfection this week. Not the perfect selfie, nor the perfect relationship, or even the perfect marriage. Chase after the only perfection you will act, ever, actually ever find. Because we know that he alone is worthy. Because he deserves it. And quite simply, you can't be fulfilled without it. So not to us, Lord, not to us. And we're just going to worship together, and then I'll come back and pray. Splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice himself in light and darkness tries to hide trembles at his voice trembles at his voice how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all
Lord, we're just so so thankful to be your children. We're so thankful to be here today, just to, just among your children, Lord. Just to just to know, just to know how much you love us. And and Lord, we just want to take time today and take time throughout this week to just move towards that position, Lord, where we're going to give you the glory, whether whether it be in the things that we we're doing online, the conversations we have, or simply the music we choose to listen to, Lord. Would would, would we become people who seek you first? Would we become people? who seek out to give you the glory because we know you alone are worthy and we also know that that's what we were created for. Fulfillment comes from giving, giving you the praise and glory that you deserve. So as we go out this week, Lord, can we remember the words of this song, name above all names, worthy of our praise. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, just for, for all that you've done in our lives, Lord. But can we just, can you just speak to us? Can you just work in our lives this week? Holy Spirit, can you just move in our hearts that we can remember that you, God alone deserves the glory in our lives, that joy will come when we finally turn our faces towards him. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you so much for the, the sacrifice you made for us. So undeserving, yet so thankful. We just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.